Lord, we're so thankful that we can be together, that we can be together to remember uh, what you have done, the peace that you have brought to our lives, and that we're able to celebrate that, and then to live in that peace. Lord, just be with us this morning as we dive into your word. So in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. As Pastor John said, my name is Josh Kinsley, serving as an elder here at Redemption Peoria, and it's just good to be with you this morning on this unusually rainy, pleasant weekend. It's like Seattle came to visit, and uh, that's great. So we want to begin this morning, and I'd like for you just to take a moment to think about a memorable meal that you have experienced. This could be maybe like a really bad Thanksgiving kind of snafu weekend, like one of those turkeys they try to fry and doesn't go so well. Or maybe it's just a beautiful wedding feast, you know, one of those weddings that you've been to where it's like, this is glorious. So while you're thinking about that, I want to share with you about a memorable meal, memorable meal that I experienced in Indonesia. Uh, as John mentioned, I work for a global training network, but before that, I worked for a relief and development organization. And I started there right after college, and a part of my job was I took teams to be a part of the projects that they worked on around the world. And so um, sometimes these projects coincided with uh, disaster responses. So if you recall, there was the, uh, the tsunami back in Southeast Asia in 2004. And I was with a team in Sumatra, Indonesia. We were doing a variety of projects throughout the island. And one of the projects was in a town called Lokbot. And so we were driving up to this community, and our in-country host is telling us all about it. He's like, guys, they're really excited to have you. The community leader and his wife, they want to host you for all of the meals. And he was like, oh, that, that's great. And uh, we look forward to meeting them. So we, we drove into the, this small, real small community. And uh, we go straight to dinner. And his, his wife, you know, they, they greet us. And she's bringing out these little silver pots. And we're all seated on the ground. Because, of course, in this culture, there are no chairs. You're just sitting on the ground. And she presents all these different pots of food. And, um, you know, I'm not going to lie. It was a rough meal. It was mostly fermented tofu, various fish stews, and a few things that our translator, he didn't even want to tell us what it was. He's like, <laughs> he's like, just eat, just eat. So we ate, and we tried to get through it the best we could. And so the next morning, we're, we're about to start, start the project, so we go to their house again, and we see his wife, and she brings out these, these cool silver pots again, and we're like, okay, great, we're, we're really hungry, we got a lot of work, and we open up the lids, and it's the exact same food, the exact, all the exact same items. And I'm like, okay, that's okay. I'm all about leftovers, man. We got to be good stewards. We'll eat this, no problem. So we, we do our best to try to eat it again. Then lunch comes around. The pots come back out. And you probably know where this is going. Deja vu. This is exact same food. Dinner comes. The next day comes. For a full seven days, we enjoyed the same cuisine day after day after day. And of course, we adapted. We wanted to be, we knew that they had sacrificed to have this food for us. So we adapted. We, we would always bring our little Gatorade dry packs and we would sort of swig it down. And uh, again, we, we tried to make the best of this food. But it probably goes without saying, we were never satisfied after any of the meals. In fact, we used to call it the Lockbot diet. That if you wanted to lose a quick 15, this is what you should do. We were always very hungry. But today we want to focus on a different meal. We want to focus on a meal that would satisfy, 
not because of the quality of the food, not because of the beautiful decor of the restaurant, but because of the one who invites us to this table and what the meal represents. As we continue our Advent series, today we're focused on peace. And we're defining that as godly satisfaction. And so we're going to look at how an invitation to the king's table brings transformative, feet, uh, transformative peace into our lives. But um, as you guys know, we, we can't just jump into a meal, right? We've got to, as all your kids would know, you've got to set the table first, right? We've got to have some historical context before we get into this. And we're going to be looking at three different aspects of peace that we experience at this meal at the king's table. The first one is that the table brings unexpected peace. This is not the peace that we think we need or the ones that we want, but it's the unexpected peace. So we're going to set the table a little bit with historical context. As we ended the last sermon series, it was called We Want a King. And God's people, they had said, hey, we, we want a king. We want to be like all these other nations. We want to be cool like them. But this, this brought what? This brought trouble to God's people. They thought that an earthly king would bring them success, status, and influence. But it didn't because their kings were flawed. These kings, they didn't follow God's commandment. They abused their power. They had personal failures. And as God promised, the king's disobedience, along with the people's disobedience, it eventually led to judgment. And shortly after Solomon, we see Solomon, he passes away, and the kingdom ends up splitting in half. There's a northern half and a southern half. And about 100 years later, this northern half of the country, known as Israel, they would be conquered by the Assyrians. And this, the Assyrians, they were a brutal regime. And the people of God, they are exiled. They're scattered. The southern kingdom, it hangs on a little bit longer, 135 years. But then the Babylonians, they come in, they take over the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah. And again, the people are enslaved. They're exiled. The nation is almost, it's almost non-existent. This is the low point in Israel's history. Later on, there is a, a new ruler named King uh, Cyprus, and he is the leader of the Persian Empire. And he allows God's people to come back to Jerusalem to try to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. But honestly, the nation of Israel, it's a, it's a shell of its former presence both on land and stature and influence. These are dark times for the nation of Israel. But, that's always a good word, right? When things are going bad, but. In the midst of all of this despair, God is still working. Through the prophets, through the prophets, God is revealing that there will be a coming king. There will be a king that's, that's that's coming. So we're going to focus back on that passage in Micah, Micah chapter 5, if you want to open up your Bibles. This is one of those prophetic messages that gives us some details about what would this king look like? What's this king, what's he going to do? So let's read this together in Micah chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, from ancient of days. 
Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. We want to make a quick, a couple of quick observations in this passage. Verses 1 and 3, these should be somewhat familiar. This is looking ahead to the humiliating defeats that Israel would endure, that they would face. But right there, kind of snuck in in verse 2, we see this, this good news. This ancient ruler that would arrive from a small, no-name city. And this ancient ruler, he would stand and shepherd God's people. And when this happens, they will be secure. And at this time, were God's people feeling secure? No, man, they're, they're, they're scattered. They're being forced to assimilate into these other nations. But this prophecy says they'll be secure. And this king's greatness, it'll extend over the whole world. And this shepherd king will be their peace. And this is not an isolated description. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says that this king will be the prince of peace. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10 describes him as one who would speak peace into the nations. So the news of this future peace, I mean, this would have been something of serious interest to, the, to God's people, to the Israelites, because their country's fallen apart. And they're reading this. The prophets are, are telling them about this coming king. And they've been like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This sounds good. When is this going to happen? So let's flash forward. Hundreds of years later, uh, hundreds of years later, we encounter a baby being born to a poor family, being born in Bethlehem, a, a no-name town, the city of David. And in Luke chapter 2, a group of angels, they, they appear to these shepherds. And they declared the birth of Jesus. I mean, talk about an unusual birth announcement. Let's read verse 14 together. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. The angels, they're praising God. They're celebrating as Christ is born, declaring this arrival of peace. And I want to I just make mention something, something last week that Peter talked about. He talked about how expectations are everything. And based on the experiences of God's people right now, their circumstances, their historical experience, they would have had some expectations about what this peace would look like. They expected Jesus to rule in a certain way. Because again, they're, they're in a mess. They're under Roman rule at this time. And the Romans, they ruled well. And they were under their oppression. They were paying taxes to them. The Israelites had very little autonomy. um, And they were just clinging, just clinging to their religious customs. And this is the most important part. They they desired a savior that would deliver a military and political revolution. And these expectations are revealed in how they treated Jesus. Let's just take a brief look at John chapter 6, starting in verse 15. So let's just set the scene. Jesus is teaching He's in a, in a very remote location, and uh, he's teaching kind of long. I promise I won't go long, but he did go long. And the people were getting hungry, and they were needing a meal. 
So I'm, I'm kind of sensing a theme, a theme here, a lot of meals being talked about. So Jesus is like, okay, disciples, what are we going to do? And they're like, well, Chick-fil-A is closed, in and out's too far. I, I don't know what we're going to do. So there's this little boy with two loaves and some fish, and Jesus, he, he takes this food, he breaks it, he blesses it. And all of a sudden, Jesus, he multiplies his food. He feeds 5,000 men plus countless other women and children. And the people there, they're like, whoa, whoa. They're seeing the signs. They're like, this is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. The prophets, they've been talking about this guy. But in verse 15, Jesus, he's seeing what's going on. And it says that perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people, they were missing it. They were missing what the king has come to do. Let's go back to, uh, to Micah real fast. So to rewind, go back to Micah. The first four chapters, these are not chapters about how Israel should prepare for the Assyrians. It's not about like, hey, the Assyrians are coming. You need to spend more in your military. You need to start training no, these first, these first four or five chapters, they're all about Israel's idolatry. They're all about how they're not worshiping God. They're not obeying him. They're not, they're not listening to him. And Micah is saying to the people, yeah, I, I get it. The Assyrians, they're going to be a problem, but they're not your biggest problem. And in, in the commentary in the book of Micah, Stephen Um says this, the people will need God to provide a rescuer just as he promises in verse 2. But the one who is to be ruler in Israel will be one who, in order to bring peace, will need to rescue the people, not so much from the Assyrians, but from themselves. And God cares enough to see not just what his people say that they need, but what they really, truly need. He knows. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's a, that's a hard word to hear because it's not just them, but it's us. We're all in the same boat. Our lives, they're not at peace. At least mine isn't. And we want peace. You know, who doesn't want peace? That's a kind of a universal thing. Everyone wants, wants that. But we have distorted expectations. We're usually focused on the externals. If only I had this job, this house, this career, this relationship then I would be satisfied. If only this, these other people would change, if only my Christmas shopping was done, I would have peace. If only my family relationships were healthy, if only my children weren't struggling so much, if only I could regain the trust of people I've hurt, if only I could go back in time and make a different decision. Sometimes we, we, we know and we feel like we've made a mess but we try to fix it on our own. We're trying to hustle, look for shortcuts, look for workarounds, find some sort of get-rich-quick scheme, and it's not working. Sometimes we even feel successful, though, right? You kind of wake up and you're like, I, I did pretty well, all right. But then the next day, time goes by and that, that feeling fades, and it's temporary, and you wake up feeling empty. Some of you in this room might be, wake, might be here and you're like, I feel like my peace has been stolen from me. I feel like the circumstances of life rob me. I'm not looking for peace. I'm just trying to survive. So on this Advent Sunday, we remember that Jesus came to bring peace, but he came to bring 
a lasting peace. But in order to do this, he had to get to the root of our suffering, which is our sin. And we get a beautiful picture of this in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. We're just going to summarize it quickly um, for time. So Jesus, he's teaching again. Um, He's in a house, though, this time, and it's really crowded. He's teaching the Pharisees, a lot of other people from nearby towns, and uh, all of a sudden, these, these guys show up with their friend, and their friend is, is paralyzed. He's a paralytic man. And they're trying to get in there, but they can't. So again, I just love this scene. They're, they're somehow busting through the roof. They're, they're going through the roof, and I just love that. And Jesus sees their faith, and he's like, wow, guys. He looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And I'm sure his friends are like, uh, that's cool and all, um, but not quite what we were here for. Uh, we, we heard that there was some healing going on. And the Pharisees, though, they're frustrated because they're like, what? Forgiveness of sins? Nobody can do that. No one but God. And Jesus sees through their thoughts. And to lend authority to, that he is the son of man and that he has the authority to forgive sins, he heals the man as well. Jesus sees what we do not see. Jesus understands the man's situation, and he knows what he needs most, and he goes to that first. And it wasn't the man's paralysis, and the main problem of our life is not our circumstances. Again, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about our hardships and our sufferings. He does. Remember, he is the good shepherd who loves and cares for his sheep, but he knows that that's not the main issue. It's because of our sin. We're under God's judgment and his wrath. And Jesus came to restore that relationship. But in order to do that, he had to deal with the root issue. That separates us from God, and that's our sin. So then the question is, how? How is this going to happen? How is this going to take place? Is it going to be better obedience? Are we going to double down on our religious traditions? No. Forgiveness would be a gift, but it would be a costly gift. And we see at this very special meal At the celebration of Passover, Jesus gives us a preview of how he would bring peace through forgiveness. The details are in Matthew chapter 26. And this is not an ordinary meal. I already mentioned it's Passover. And just a few words about this. Passover was when God's people celebrated their their freedom from slavery from Egypt. Remember Pharaoh and his hardness of heart? Nine plagues came. He still would not let the people go. So God brings a tenth plague the death of the firstborn. And so, but God said, hey, I'm going to protect my people, but you've got to do this. You've got to take an unblemished lamb, kill that lamb, and put the blood over the doorpost of your house. And that would allow this angel of death to pass over your home. And so there, as Jesus and his disciples, as they reclined at table at this Passover meal, Jesus reveals that he would be the Passover lamb for all of humankind. He would be the one to break the curse of sin and death. Jesus is going to undo the heartbreak that started at the Garden of Eden. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, we see Satan. He's there in the form of a serpent. And he goes up to Adam and Eve and he says, here, take this fruit. Take it. Take it and eat it. It's, It's delicious. Take it and eat it. And Adam and Eve, they they knew they shouldn't eat the fruit. God had already told them it was off limits. He had given them a lush garden to enjoy, but they took it 
and they ate anyways. What was the result? Was it satisfaction? Was it fulfillment? No. They were driven from the garden. They were separated from God. And we've been enduring the consequences of, their, of this sin ever since. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 26. And let's read this together. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. At this table, at this meal, with his disciples, Jesus is saying, Take and eat. Only this meal will not bring death. This meal will bring everlasting life. In fact, in this meal, Jesus is going to take the death that we deserve so that we can have life, abundant life. He takes the bread and he breaks it, his body broken for us. He takes the cup, this is my blood spilled for you. And of course, the disciples, they did not know what was coming, but we do. Jesus went to the cross, his body was broken for us, his blood spilled for us. He took the punishment that we deserved. All of this so that we could be reconciled to the Father. Romans 5, chapter 1 puts it beautifully. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is all the peace that we need. This is that underlying root cause of anxiety and fear and lack of satisfaction that we deal with. This is the peace that changes how I see my circumstances and how I handle adversity. And as we approach this table every week, this is what we remember. We remember this lavish love that God has poured out. We're going to transition. We've got just two kind of final, final points that talk about how this table also encourages peace with one another. And the, the point here is that the king never invites us to his table alone. So scripture always points that communion is something that happens together. This is not like a DoorDash routine where you can just kind of order it online, get it delivered, enjoy it at your convenience in your house. No, this is something we go and do together. And the table, it creates a space. It creates an opportunity for us to pray together, to encourage one another, to bear the burdens of one another. We don't have to do this Christian journey alone. If you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're discouraged, if you're dealing with depression, doubt, battling fear, struggling with sin, communion is this space where you can come and, and link arms with other brothers and sisters and say, I, I need help. I, I can't do this. I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble remembering this. I know this is good, but right now my circumstances are just too great. I'm, I'm, I'm not able to really go any further. Communion is also an opportunity for reconciliation. Because the cross, of course, it reconciled things vertically, us with God. But it also transforms how we do relationships horizontally with one another. As we prepare our hearts for the table, we need to think about our relationships. Are there people I need to forgive? Am I holding a grudge Am I allowing prejudice to take hold in my heart? 
Am I marked more by peace and affection, or am I marked by anger and offense? Am I actively seeking to love and know others? Because we know that the church is not a perfect place. There's going to be conflict. In fact, we see this really clearly in the early church. They were both Jewish people and Gentiles coming to know Christ. And that sounds like a good thing, only these two groups had a huge beef with one another. They were not the type of people that associated with, with, with each other. So it's like, what are we going to do? Have two separate churches, Jews over here, Gentiles over here. That probably would have been more convenient. Probably, probably would have been easier. But that's not the church that Jesus had envisioned. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, God begins to tear down these walls of hostility against two groups that had hated each other for a long time. This was not easy, though. It was not instantaneous. It wasn't like just like they, they just walked up and shook hands and said, it's all good. No, read the book of Acts. It's like a story of how this plays out. This is not a quick thing, but God is working. And in, uh, there's kind of a culmination. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verses 11 through 22, he reminds us that we are all one in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, that we are all far off. We were all dead in our sins, but because of Christ, we've been brought near. And Jesus is our peace. And because of that, this, is, this hostility that we might have with one another, it melts away. Let's read the final two verses, verses 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So coming to the table, it creates a bond of love. As you walk down this aisle, you might see people that you're like, man, I, you know, I, I never thought I would be in a room with people like this. Because there's people in this room that are from all different backgrounds, but there's this bond of love that we have in Christ. And it's not built on, on us, on our ability, but it's built on this cornerstone of who Jesus is. The final point we want to look at is that the table is not just for remembering what Christ has done, although it is. It's also for looking ahead, remembering his promise to return. Because there are going to be Sundays, and, and many of you have probably already had Sundays like this, where you come to church and your heart is weary. Your world has been turned upside down. The worst thing that you had imagined has taken place. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Or maybe you're just grieving the impact of sin in your own life or in the world around. And you just come here and you're weary. And you're just like, I don't know if I can, I can go any further. And we know that in Scripture, there's no promise of earthly peace. In fact, we're even told that if you follow Jesus, this is going to bring suffering. And it's like, oh, man, that's a, that's a real bummer. But when we come to this meal, we don't just think about and remember and think about right now. We look, we look ahead. And we do this because, because Jesus did it. Let's look at verse 29 in chapter 26 of Matthew. So just to set the scene... As Christ is breaking this bread and pouring the cup, he knows he's moving towards his death. But yet we also see him looking towards the future. Let's read this verse together. Verse, verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine 
until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Oh, man, you just read that. You just, I just feel a little bit more buoyant. Because even though Jesus is here, and he knows what's coming. He knows what's around the bend. He's about to suffer this unreal, unimaginable death, being separated from, from his father. But he's thinking of this future meal, a future feast, a glorious feast. He's thinking about this feast described in Revelations chapter 19. It's known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's this feast where all the people that love Jesus and follow him, they're all gathered together. And it's just like this epic image of this, this beautiful party, this celebration. And Jesus is thinking about that meal. This meal will be glorious because evil and sin are no more and the world is made right. Everything that's wrong has been undone. There'll be no more pain, no more death, no more tears, no more hindrances. There'll be nothing that will separate us from the love of God. Talk about a satisfying peace. And I don't think we'll have to count any calories at this feast. So when we come to this table together, it is to remember, absolutely. And it's to sort of put ourselves in the feet of the disciples in that remembrance. You know, we started this, this morning thinking about that, that meal. Let's think about this meal as the disciples did. I'm sure they never broke bread again without thinking about that night. But we also think about one another. As we walk towards the table, someone might come to our mind, someone that we have bitterness towards, someone that we have anger towards, and, and may the Holy Spirit lead you to make that right, to go to that person. That, that our body would look like a body that loves one another and loves those outside of us. But then we also look ahead. We're knowing that we can bring our biggest sorrows and our biggest longings, knowing that someday our king will return. And we await for this. We await for this joyous, this joyous return and this satisfying peace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're, we're thankful. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the promise. Lord, that as we come, as we come to worship you this morning, that we can remember this peace that you give us. That although in our flesh we desire certain outcomes for our lives, but we know that you've given us real lasting peace. Lord, and that this peace changes how we see one another. It changes how we see people who don't know you that we don't see them as a, as a threat, as a problem, but we see them as people to be loved. Lord, and we also think ahead during this Advent season. Lord, we're no longer waiting as the Israelites were waiting for you to come, but we're waiting for you to return. Lord, help us to hold fast to this peace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.